Welcome to the Crisis, Conflict, and Emergency Management Podcast, where we have global conversations and share perspectives about international crisis, preparedness, and how to build more resilient societies. My name is Kyle, and I will be your host. And just how vulnerable are we to the changing international environment, and what can we learn from this experience? From AI to space warfare to community development and crisis communications, there's something here for everyone. Join us for unique international conversations and perspectives into the current threats, challenges, and risks to our society. This podcast is brought to you by Capacity Building International and sponsored by the International Emergency Management Society. Okay, so welcome to the CBI podcast and where we discuss crucial topics in resilience and emergency management. I'm your host, Kyle King, and today we're going to be exploring the, the issue of climate change and migration. And with us today is Sarah Bellagioni from Rutgers University, who will share her insights and expertise on this subject. So as climate change continues to disrupt our global ecosystems, coastal communities and vulnerable populations are feeling the brunt of its impacts. Migration, both domestic and international, is becoming an increasingly significant response to these challenges. And in this episode, we're going to delve into the various factors shaping this phenomenon and the diverse approaches that countries can take or communities can take in addressing it. So without further ado, let's dive right into our discussion. And Sarah, thanks for joining us today. And let's start with a quick introduction and background. Absolutely. So thank you so much for having me here. I really appreciate to having the chance to talk a little bit more about what I'm doing, what I will be doing for a while. So again, Sarah Biligoni from uh, Rogers University. I am a postdoctoral research associate working closely with the Megalopolitan Coastal Transformation Hub. I am originally from Italy, where I got my first steps in the academic field, getting my first degrees there. And then I recently got my PhD from the University of Central Florida. So I have wide expertise on climate change and migrations, focused with different lenses. So I'm happy to be here today and talk with you more. And as a disclaimer, of course, all my views are mine. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks again for joining us. I think this is going to be an increasingly important topic as we have even seen just in recent days in the States with, you know, significant storms and even blizzards falling in California and, and things we can obviously see are changing quite a bit, you know, even almost in real time, even though we've sort of been building up to this for a while. But why do you think that this topic is relevant to our work in, in terms of emergency management? and in the resilience or emergency management space overall. Absolutely. So the problem with migrations associated with climate change, it's it's very much connected with both the emergency management and the resilient aspects, simply because if you think about migrations resulting from climate change, they are the adaptation measure that people take to become more resilient to climate change. So simply put, people, when they feel that they are vulnerable and not really resilient to climate change resulting disasters, the way they adapt to that is also by migrating. So it has a very strong connection with the resilient aspect, but also with the emergency management, because the more the emergency management is eventually able to uh, plan for disasters and focus strongly on adaptation or mitigation, then that means that the likelihood of communities to migrate 
can change. So the better the emergency management plans for that and the less likely people are to migrate and vice versa. So I think that's a strong connection. I definitely think so. And in terms of sort of the planning for migration and things like that, you know, I think one of the interesting aspects that we're seeing is I think we're underestimating the impact on communities and sort of the migration numbers. When we look at the overall shift and and perspective and the numbers are, for example, from a NATO perspective, we look at migration of 2% of a population, but it's more than that, right? And so whether that's from conflict or climate-driven reasons, you know, we're seeing upwards of substantially more and more. So in some cases, we've seen 20% and in some cases upwards of of 40% of, of smaller populations that are going into this migration are moving internally or internationally. And so I think there's a substantial impact that's occurring. And also in terms of emergency management, if we just looked on the southern border in the United States, just in terms of migration, regardless of the cause, that migration itself is a significant resource driver. And there's a lot of resource constraints and capacity as well that we're all experiencing in the community levels. But as that continues to grow and we start to see increased migration for whatever reason, you know, what are some of the impacts of not really addressing this issue? Yeah, well, the impacts are twofold. So on one hand, you have the impact on the community, the communities that are leaving, so basically that are losing people. But also at the same time, you have an impact of the communities that are receiving migrants. So I think the attention can go in both directions, making sure that you are carefully assessing what will be happening in the communities where you have a lot of people living. What does it mean for you know the economy, for the labor dynamics? And at the same time, uh, the same considerations are to be done in the community that it is eventually receiving. On top of that, I would say that most of the attention is given primarily on the macro phenomenon. So we're looking at the migration in a very broad um, or I would say global lens, but there is no real attention on more the microscopic aspects. So what does it mean for the people that are actually migrating? So there is very little attention to the impact that can have on the finances of a family, on the education of kids, on the professional career of adults. So all these things are being often overlooked, but I think they have a strong impact on not only the people that, as I said, like they migrate, but ultimately that is something to keep into consideration, especially for the communities that are receiving migrants. So in other words, you have to plan accordingly. If you don't plan accordingly in creating opportunities for these people, making sure that kids can continue their education and so on, then you somehow fail these people, but you fail also as community because then all these issues will create more. So I think there is a lot of attention from the macro level, very little from the micro level. So I think that both should be considered. And also we have to keep in mind that there are areas in the world where you can migrate within country, but the experience of domestic migrants is much different than those of international ones. Because, of course, there you have all challenges that come with the international migration, adapting to a new culture, language, perhaps having to, you know, face long visa processes and try to adjust to the new 
community, the new country. So also the migration experience can shape a lot how you have to plan for receiving these people. And very often uh, we are seeing a tendency of considering migrations uh, resulting from climate change or multitude of reasons, because sometimes climate change is one of the many reasons why people migrate. And so there are countries that are framing that with the lenses of national security, while I think that might pose some ethical issues. And so maybe equity lenses would work a little bit better, I would say, (laughs) definitely better. But unfortunately, we see less equity lenses, much more national security lenses, and so that's actually what researchers and scholars are trying to understand what a shift could eventually mean for like the overall phenomenon of climate migrations. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think you highlight a very distinct point between when we say emergency management and then when we talk about resilience. Because, you know, from that, you know, sort of very basic sort of framing here, but in terms of emergency management, and looking at it from receiving a large migration of a population, attending to their immediate cares and needs, there's never much of a discussion because it's a disaster framework. You sort of return them to where they are displaced from and you recover and you mitigate any future emergencies. But in terms of climate security, climate change and, and things like that, you don't really return anybody back to a, that population, or that area that they're coming from. And so then it becomes an issue of resilience, right? Where okay, if you just accepted these thousands and thousands of people into your communities, then what do you do with them in terms of, as you actually just mentioned, I mean, in terms of the job training, the economic and sustainability of integration of new populations into the communities, changing demographics and everything that goes along with that. And I think that's a very good example in terms of the difference between when we talk about emergency and disaster management and then also leaning more into long-term community resilience. And I think in terms of that, Let's explore for a bit in terms about the the equity piece that you were talking about. When you are looking at that from this perspective, because I come from the climate security perspective, right? And so that the climate change and, and the things that are occurring and the impacts on, on national security and resources and things like that. So can you explain a little bit more about the non-climate security view? Yeah. So, I mean, I think like one, um, somehow it's connected because I think that when we talk about providing these people that migrate with more welcoming, I would say, environment, we talk about making them feeling safe because we have to remember that these are people that are migrating because they feel unsafe where they were living. And most of the time, those are people that have very little resources and they see the migration as the only option they have. There are some people that are not even having this option. There are people that just don't migrate because they have no no choice. So those that migrate can either be people that really can afford that and they maybe also have resources and assets to perfectly fit in a different community. But that's not always the case. And so in this case, you know, we have to make sure that these people feel safe where they are and they can access uh, like if ideally would be the same kind of resources that they used to access where they are coming from. And then, of course, that would be ideal because recreating a safe space where they feel they're more resilient, their vulnerability is not anymore there constantly worrying them. I think that would be like a great 
goal. But that requires time because indeed we're not in a kind of like disaster planning anymore. We're talking about the long term. And so that comes with a lot of uh, less, uh, I would say, crisis kind of response, more like a resilience kind of response and long term planning. So I think the safety issue still really plays a key role, but definitely it has to also include the more aspects that are related to make feel these people more welcome and really part of a, of a community. And that involves a lot, a lot of like efforts. You know, we actually see quite a bit of that, uh, especially in the conflict and or post-conflict space as well. So if we, I often, many times I refer to what's happening in the events in Ukraine and sort of looking at that from an emergency management lens. And then we see in terms of evacuations and people leaving these, these towns and, and communities that are directly in conflict, it is coming down to these sort of enabling factors of maybe they don't want to leave or maybe they're elderly. It's been their house forever, you know, and economically, maybe they can't leave. And so there's options of just really where are they going to go and what are they going to do? And that really has a significant impact in terms of people's own personal decision making and what they think their future might be. And I, there isn't a, a great way to address it in terms of the, of the conflict space, but it's good that we're having that discussion in terms of the coastal cities and our own communities. But you know, now that we're sort of looking at this internationally, though, what are some of the ways that this topic is being addressed internationally? Yeah. So, I mean, the problem internationally is that then you have uh, a series of considerations that are more geopolitical than anything else. So domestically, if you see people starting to move from an area to another one, what you can do is that ideally you're going to work on a mitigation strategy but you can still try to adapt. You can still provide people with incentives to make their homes more resilient and so on. Internationally, what happens is that you have a series of other considerations are, first of all, these people just migrating for climate purposes or not. Are these people eventually having like a background which can come from like their education, their professional skills that might fit you know, the communities where they're going. And so there are a series of additional considerations that make the international migrations more complicated. So, for example, in the United States, you see migrations that are both domestic and international. You see other areas in the southeast of Asia where most of the migrations are instead international. So countries like Australia, New Zealand are seeing more massive migrations from small island states. And so like they're framing uh, the migrations there more as an international issue only. But in areas like the Southeast of Pacific, then you have a lot of geopolitical considerations because there is some scholarship addressing that as a sort of like great power competition over there because massive shift in you know the demographics can also lead to massive shift in the economy and so like there there are a lot of interest in bold china 
Australia, even the United States. And so that creates also a lot of discussion from a geopolitical perspective, which ultimately means that the issue there is much more framed as a matter of national security than anything else. So eventually there we can see more like a sort of like emergency management kind of crisis response framework, which instead you might not see inside the, like within the border of a country. So of course, when it comes to the domestic migrations in the United States, you don't necessarily frame them as a matter of national security. But when you see those migrations across like a continent, a region, then the lenses change a lot. And that's why some scholars, especially from the security studies, the political science field, are starting to discuss that as a sort of like great power competitions where they're trying to understand what these migrations might mean from their own interests in the area. That's always been a challenge, I think, with international organizations, you know, and it, it is difficult, especially in large organizations like United Nations to sort of reach a consensus on different ideas and on how to approach things, which I can understand because everybody's sort of different, just like in the United States. I mean, every community is different. Every location is going to be different in terms of their threats, their risks, and and sort of their ability and resource ability to deal with these issues. And so that's where I think it's going to be extremely interesting to see how this can play out. And I'm also very curious in terms of how international sort of conversations shape what we're doing in the States and sort of have you seen much in terms of the perspectives of international, other international communities influence or shape the way that we're doing things in the U.S.? The role of the international organizations, of course, is more on the regulatory framework. So big organizations like the U.N. and all the panels and bodies that are created within the U.N. to address specifically climate change issues of course, work uh, more from a regulatory pro like perspective and framework. So they work a lot on the mitigation aspect, setting goals that countries eventually are supported and help in achieving. So in the United States, we had a lot of like back and forth on how we frame climate change, how much we engage eventually in climate change uh, framework conventions and so on. And so recently we see that climate change is being recognized as an issue, as a crisis. And so there are several regulations that and executive orders that also were issued in the last couple of years that try to address climate change more with the lens of how it's being seen at the international level. So, however, the point here is that these framework and regulations that are passed at the international level can certainly help and shape the U.S. or any other country approach to climate change, the climate crisis and migrations. But the problems are very local. So the way in which the United States will eventually approach that at the local level, it's very different than how any other country will do. So here in the United States, because we have this double migrations, domestic and international, it seems that there is, of course, a lot of attention given the domestic ones. So there is a lot of attention of what demographics are changing 
For example, like, are we seeing more people moving north? Are we seeing more people moving from east to west or vice versa? And also, what are the challenges of then these people moving? Because think about like tries to leave the west for the wildfires, but then, you know, comes to the east and then you have to deal with the sea level rise because hurricanes, flooding and etc. So. I think the, the, in the United States, there is a lot of more attention now to the international frameworks, but there is a lot of attention also on the internal shift. And, and there is a lot of like attention given to these changes in the demographics from area to area to understand if these people moving from, for example, the West to the East, then at some point they will probably move somewhere else because of the vulnerability that they feel in the East. So I think it's um, the United States case is a little bit uh, more complex because of this both international and domestic uh, aspect. Well, so let's let's bring that back down a little bit towards the communities and and get a little bit more specific since a, a lot of the research that you're working on now. Uh, so what kind of threats are more likely to affect coastal communities, such as sea level rise, changing characteristics of storms, you know, which we continue to see even this last week that produced more flooding and things like that. So what sort of threats are we more likely to be affecting our, our coastal communities? Yeah, for sure, sea level rise, uh, that's a big part uh, of, uh, let's say, the hazards that are likely to, to affect coastal communities. And that's true in the United States. That's true in so many other areas of the world. Uh, unfortunately, we have seen like the problem with the last few years is that we're seeing these uh, climate uh, uh, changes uh, being faster than they used to be. And that's why we are also kind of like scrambling to adapt to them, to plan for them. So one of the main examples I can give you as someone that has extensively studied hurricanes is that the hurricanes themselves are changing in their characteristics. So in the Atlantic Ocean, we have uh, uh, much more storms that are originating, but not just that, the time frame also of the well-known uh, hurricane season, Atlantic hurricane season is changing, like the peak of the season is changing. And at the same time, also the characteristics uh, themselves of the stores are changing. So the last hurricane season, we have seen with the case of Hurricane Ian impacting Florida, we have seen how like a uh, rain event like Ian can cause a lot of damages almost the same as for a wind-only event. So we have Southwest Florida that was devastated because of a combination of rain and wind. But at the same time, then you still have also Central Florida that is being severely affected because of the rainfall that Ian was bringing. And so like this changing um, characteristics of hurricanes also require a different kind of planning. And in general, coastal communities are, of course, the ones that are most affected because even the adaptation measures are not easy to implement. They do not occur overnight. And there is pretty much the same kind of issue that we see with migrants. There are people that can afford to become more resilient. There are areas where you have several incentives to make your house more resilient. There are other areas where there are less resources, so there are no incentives. Maybe people don't have their own savings to invest in that. And so those are all, you know, like a series of issues that, of course, also have to 
be taken into consideration from an emergency management perspective because if you know that your community is more resilient then you plan in a certain way but if you know that if a hurricane is coming and most of the people feel insecure at home it's much more different the way you plan the way in which you evaluate whether to issue evacuation orders and you plan for shelters opening and so on so it's very complex for coastal communities and the attention is now given on on them because of this reason but it's not necessarily the only communities that are affected by climate change because we have seen like an increase in heat waves and wildfires. So it's unfortunately is a series of uh, different uh, effects that uh, might really lead to a much more complex phenomenon than the one that we might have envisioned for a while before now. When you were talking about that, I had a couple of thoughts and I, I wanted to hear what your perspective is on this. So first of all, you know, there's the climate migrants or climate refugees. There's there's sort of a shifting terminology as this subject continues to come to the forefront of our conversations. And it's interesting because when you look specifically at some of the islands, Pacific Islands are where they they are, that they are actually losing their nation. There's not a status for these type of migration, as far as I understand, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, they're not migrating because of conflict. They're not migrating because of economic development or whatever. There's no visa scheme or anything else like that. They're migrating because they're losing their entire nation and culture. And we don't have any sort of framing for any of that type of migration. Um, so before I we talk about the next point, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Have we, have we come to reconcile the issue of climate migration and sort of visas and, and how people migrate? Yeah, I mean, the problem is that as of now, there's very little in the regulations that recognize the status of the climate refugee. And so, like, even though it's a term that is being used at the international level within regional international organizations, that's very little then at the country level that recognize their status. So I think that what is being discussed a little bit more and might have sense is to consider those climate refugees more as, uh, I would say, humanitarian refugees. Because in reality, if you think about like people that are leaving their country because the whole country might be affected at some point by sea level rise or any other hazard, those are people that really have no jobs. So there are strong shift in the labor. And so there might be also people that were employed in agriculture and at some point, the size of crops are half of what they used to be. So there is a lot of like loss in terms of like food production and labor dynamics are also affected. So that sounds very close to a humanitarian crisis. And so probably what is going to happen in the short term is more like considering them as humanitarian refugees and then hopefully regulations at the international level and more and more at the country level will allow for a more precise definition of climate refugees, uh, providing them with a sort of like framework and laws that might allow them to migrate more, more easily. But I think the short-term solution can be considering them as humanitarian migrants, because in the end, it's uh, it's very much alike. So, And the second part, I guess at some point, we have to come to a definition of what's going on and sort of a, a way to deal with that. Um, 
I don't know when, <laughs> but it's going to be an issue. And the other thing, and you mentioned this in terms of resource constraints and the impacts on communities. For me, it's interesting in terms of a long-term impact on community public safety programs and things like that because of the fact, if I just make a very simple example, if you have repeated hurricanes off the coast of Florida and they're more and more intense and more frequent, you're going to eventually get to a point of migration. And people will leave that community and they will move on to go somewhere inland where it's less sort of hazards and risks. Now, at the same time, uh, emergency management and all the public services are largely taxpayer-based funded and you know require that sort of revenue stream in order to be able to have those essential services. So in that term, it's if you think about the long-term impact, is that migration actually reduces overall sort of total tax revenue and stream, reduces the ability to actually effectively respond to disasters, and over gradually over time, you start losing key public administration positions, which are even including emergency management or an office of emergency management because the tax base is no longer there. And it's a, essentially a, a long-term strategic resource drain on the community. Yeah, that's very much possible because, I mean, you already see in Florida from like perspective of someone that lived there from, from a while, many people feel, for example, that Central Florida is much safer because even if you get early gains, they're much, you know, less strong. And so many people try to say to just move from the coast inland, maybe just one hour away and maybe still commuting if that's the case, but literally moving their residents more inland. And that means that uh, everything that is on the coast uh, will see a decrease in, of course, all the revenues coming from property taxes, which are mainly the main um, sort of resource for funding all the public safety and emergency management uh, efforts. So I think that that would in the long term be problematic and eventually motivate even more people in migrating just as a result of that. So I think that we will see like a sort of like first wave of people migrating because of like this vulnerability feeling they have by living on the coast. But then you will have eventually people that even decided at first place to stay but because of the impact of having less people around and just have cities that where businesses even are closing because maybe there's no the same amount and number of people around and then they will be motivated to leave because of that. So it might not be like a direct climate reason for them to leave, but it will be more an indirect one because of the impact that these uh, migrations that of people that are leaving might have on the community itself. So that's something that in the long term can have an impact on emergency management, on public safety, and the overall well-being of the community, because even businesses are going to close. And that's something that I don't really see. And maybe I'm just sort of not paying attention to it or something, but it's something I really don't see discussed very much, which is sort of the the creeping effects of, of climate change or, you know, and, and sort of the impact there because of the fact that maybe that if we stay on that theme of Florida or any coastal city, really, there's a tourist window mm-hmm. and the changes in the and the weather and sort of patterns and and strength and frequency of storms will eventually close that tourist window. It'll become not maybe six months, maybe it comes four months. And there is an impact on business and revenue streams. And, that, you know, we don't see that very much, at least in, in some of the information that's being published. It is, but I think maybe not, it's not a real broad and frequent discussion within most of the communities these days. 
Yeah, no, I agree. And it's not by chance that the parks are all in Orlando, in Central Florida. And it's actually true. The reason why you, you have Disney Universal is because this area is considered much more resilient. So that's why, even though the coast is, is fantastic and is beautiful, those parks uh, with a long-term like vision were built there because of uh, a sense of uh, more resilience. And But of course, the, the coast will have more and more impacts and not just the the east coast of florida if you think about it but even the the gulf coast so the west coast the whole area of tampa because we have seen more and more hurricanes going towards the gulf direction and that is also you know something to keep in mind because you have several touristic attractions and uh, beautiful areas over there that are being impacted because like the tourism usually is over uh, is, is during the summer but it's also when you start see a peak in the hurricane season and so this is something that should be taken much more into consideration because of the impact that might have also on the let's say more private sector the business the hospitality sector for sure and so one of the questions I always ask when I get to have people on the show is talk about, you know, what can we really do today in terms of these larger, more strategic issues? And, and what are some of the key takeaways that, you know, we can possibly key up discussions or whatever the case is from your perspective and, and being at Rutgers and looking at this topic more intensively than most of us? You know, what are some of the things that we uh, in the emergency management community and the resilience community or public safety field, you know, what can we be looking at today? For sure, yeah, I can speak from a research perspective first. We definitely should be a little bit more aware that climate change is such a complex phenomenon that we cannot look from one side, the one direction only. So there's need of always thinking in an interdisciplinary way. I think much more disciplines should come together and work together. And I'll give you an example of why there's a lot of like, for example, in the STEM field, in the hard science field, there's a lot of, you know, work done to eventually work on renewable energies, alternative sources of energy, because they are seen to be one of the best mitigation strategies in the long term. The problem is that if you don't put the human aspect into these developments, then you fail to consider what these developments can have on the ecosystems, on communities. So if you develop, let's say, whatever kind of like uh, alternative sources of energy infrastructure that then has a strong impact on the ecosystem where you are planning to place it, then what's the point? You are trying to mitigate something to create other issues from a different perspective. So I think that that's an exactly like an exact example of why multiple disciplines, social, STEM, should work together. And I think what is also very important is having a better understanding of what is happening in the field. So especially in the research, in the academia, like people that, like myself, not just have a traditional academic so have experience in working with the not-for-profit, the private, government sectors, and so on, can play a key role in not only framing the issues in a much more practical manner, which is very much needed, but also try to develop what I call the actionable solutions in a way that speaks the language of the 
people that eventually we are trying to develop these uh, frameworks and recommendations for. So it's very important to keep in mind that there are ideal solutions and then there are practical solutions. So it doesn't make sense to give, uh, you know, a recommendation to a policymaker and say, oh, implement that. No, it's very important that we think what's the global issues, what's the international issue, but then we focus on the local, we work with the communities so that our recommendations given to the policymakers are much more tailored to the local communities because sometimes there is this tendency of thinking globally, thinking like as big as possible, but it's not really effective when it comes to climate change because the extent and the frequency that we see a certain hazard affecting community A is so different for community B. So yes, in terms of regulations, We can go global, we can have international organizations doing even more, but in terms of like implementation of recommendations, tailored solutions, we have to think very local. And so it's very important for those of us with, you know, a knowledge on how policymaking, politics, et cetera, work, that we try to frame these actionable solutions in a way that can be really useful for the policymakers in a certain area and really answer the needs of the communities, because otherwise there's no point of doing the work we do every day. Yeah, and I think that's a great point to end on, which is really sort of the aspirational discussions that are happening, which there's a lot of them. And then there's the practical application in the communities where sort of, as we say, the rubber meets the road, right? In terms of where the actual changes are occurring. I'll highlight that and close our conversation with just this one example. There's an initiative in Berlin, uh, in Germany, which is largely heading towards that sort of climate-friendly, climate-neutral type of status. And a recent initiative in Berlin was shot down dramatically over the last week or so because of the practical implications of energy, cost of energy, and things like that. And so that the climate-neutral 2030 sort of initiative that was put to a vote was just dramatically defeated in the last week or so because these are aspirational things which don't meet that practical reality. And so I think that's a great point uh, that we have to engage communities and come up with practical steps and incremental changes and improvements over time. So Sarah, thanks a lot. Um, If somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to find you? Are you on LinkedIn? Is that a good way to find you? I am, absolutely. I have my own website, which is just my name and last name.com. And I'm on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter. So plenty of ways to get in touch. And I'm always happy to engage in more conversation on this topic. All right, Sarah. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot for joining us today and really appreciate it. Have a good day. You too. Take care. 